Okay, well, welcome to this week's episode of our Freedom Series. And today's topic, as you may have guessed from the title of this video, is Freedom from Idolatry. The problem that most of us have is the mental picture that we get when we think of an idol, well, is yours like this? Okay, there are people in this world who are actually involved in that kind of idolatry. In fact, there are people in our neighborhoods who have idols on their dashboards, idols on their desks, idols in their living rooms, literal idols. And the Bible does say quite a bit about that kind of idolatry. The second commandment calls it out specifically. Deuteronomy 5.8 says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. That's a commandment. And God is saying through Moses, don't get involved in this. This is the opposite of what I, God, want for my people, in this case, Israel. It's the opposite of how you are going to get to know God well and to experience being known by him. But look, there are a variety of other ways in which the Bible describes idols as well. One of my favorites is the story of Dagon. So meet Dagon. This is a, a sketch of a relief on a wall from a, a temple. And Dagon is a Philistine national god. In 1 Samuel 5, there's a story of the Israelites who have ignored God's instructions about how to treat the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the same Ark of the Covenant that's featured in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark that we just saw a clip from. And they, the people of Israel foolishly take it into battle. Instead of winning by being with the Ark, Israel is defeated in battle. It's badly defeated. They're routed and the Ark is captured by their enemies, the Philistines. And they take it back home and they put it in Dagon's temple. So the next day, I assume when the cleaners come in in the morning to dust and mop the floor, they find Dagon fallen on his face. How embarrassing. So they stand Dagon back up. Uh, when you've got to stand your God back up, maybe you've got a puny God. Anyway, they stand him back up. Everything's fine. But then the following day when they come in, they find that not only has he fallen on his face before the ark in a posture of worship, his head and his hands have been broken off and they're lying on the threshold, the, the doorway. And okay, this is the kind of thing that in the ancient Near East they would do to captured kings and generals. Uh, you'd cut off a thumb so someone couldn't ever hold a spear again. You'd cut off a toe so that they couldn't run in battle again. You might sever a whole hand as a show of your power, your dominion over someone else. And that means what we've got here in the Temple of Dagon is kind of an immortal combat tournament. And God gets a double flawless victory over Dagon. The Philistines, they clue in. They get a hint. 
They return the ark to Israel with gifts and offerings and a lot of concern and anxiety and trepidation. Here's what happens, though. Israel still struggles with idolatry for its whole national existence. As long as it's a nation, they're tempted by the the gods of their surrounding countries. They're tempted by worship of idols. They're tempted into that kind of idolatry. But idolatry is more subtle than that for most Americans. Uh, Idolatry is subtle, okay? It's not just a little gold thing that you, you point to, that you worship. It's not simply making objects of worship. And idolatry is a large category because it involves the worship of anything aside from the only one deserving of worship, who is the holy and perfect God Almighty. So here's the first of two John Calvin quotations for this sermon. So you know I really mean business. Here it goes. For what is idolatry if it is not to worship the gifts instead of the giver? The gifts instead of the giver. Now, God's gifts are good, but God's gifts are not and never are worthy of worship. God himself is to be our only object of worship. But look, if you and I aren't tempted by Dagon or by the gold idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark or by whatever just came off our wood lathe because we're manufacturing them, why are we talking about this at all? Here's our second John Calvin quote for the sermon. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. After the flood, okay, and I'm just going to interrupt there and say, the, the flood, we just covered that in our series on Genesis, which we've moved out of for a time and moved into this freedom series. So it's kind of topical. There was a sort of rebirth of the world, but not many years passed by before men were fashioning gods according to their pleasure. So idol factories, yeah, it, it describes in the past, and it's, it's a rough critique of us. If you're watching this with other people, what I want you to do is to give each other a word of encouragement. Turn to those with you and say, you're an idol factory. If you're watching this solo, hey, it's harder to do that, so text somebody. No prank calls, though. Now, what's the purpose of doing that? Because we don't want to accept that we are idol factories. We don't want to accept that we've got an enormous capacity for continually turning to things other than God for worship. And that's going to lead us finally into our primary text for the day. So I'm just going to pause for a quick word of prayer. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to the wonder of your care and concern for us, the glory of the gifts that you give, (laughs) the frailty of our hearts in pursuing the right things, and the opportunity in the gospel to follow you in a way that brings fullness of life and freedom. In Christ's name, amen. All right, here's the expansive primary text for the day. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is how John closes this letter. He refers to you and me as readers of this letter as little children. 
Don't take offense at that, however fully grown you are. This is the disciple Jesus loved, looking at us, at you and at me, as family in Christ. That's amazing. You are family. And as Brother John is speaking, he wants you to experience the beauty, the glory, the fullness of a Christ-centered life. And if you know John's background, you know that this is a bit of an oof because this is the same John who wasn't always quite so on top of the Christ-focused life. He was looking out for his own honor and outcome at times as well. Here's, here's a passage that talks about that. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. James and John came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Okay. Jesus, just so you know how that ends, says, nah. So your older brother, John, an absolute hero of the faith, has learned from his brash younger days when he was pursuing an agenda that wasn't Jesus's. He's been changed by the gospel. He's looking out for us, his younger siblings. John closes his letter, affectionately warning us away from idols. This is literally the last thing he says in the letter. It must be of some importance. So then the question is, if we're not looking at little gold things, where do we find idols in our lives? And so here are my two diagnostic questions at a pretty high level. Where do you seek for significance? And in what do you try to find satisfaction? So let me, let me suggest this one as a more specific diagnostic. If you look at your social media posts, how do they attempt to position you? What do you highlight? What images do you show? And what don't you show? What do you keep going back to? What topics, what concepts, what images? These are very likely to be closely related to your idols. Another specific way to look at the, these things is to look at your spending. You may be able to look at your spending, look at your bank account uh, statement, look at your credit card statement, identify patterns of purchase or giving or not purchasing or giving that reveal some of your idols, some of the places that you're trying to find significance, some of the places that you're trying to find satisfaction. A third place to look is at your calendar. How does it reveal your priorities? What idols might be visible when you reveal how you allocate your time or how you don't? Now, I have a, a mail program that attempts to do this for me itself, and because I don't consistently calendar things, it doesn't have a complete picture. But that might be an exercise to take if you're also not a, a routine calendar, is calendar everything and see where do I spend my time and what does it say about me? Because look, I'm that way in a, a number of ways. In the moment, I often don't see where I'm seeking these things. And you may be like that. Now, one of the things that I noticed is I've never been a great journaler. I go through seasons where I, I kick that off and I do it for a while. 
And then later I find old journals. And I think one of the reasons I find it difficult to keep going is I keep finding idols like these in my old journals. So let me give you some examples. I'd set near-term salary goals. I'd set longer-term career goals. I'd set relationship goals. I'd set creative goals. And looking back, there's nothing wrong with wanting another job. But the job wasn't the idol itself for me. The idol was more subtle. You follow that? The real idol was the thing that I and the thing that you want from the goal. So I set a goal about the job and the real idol was something underlying that. Now, in the case of my salary, my salary goals came from my desire for security. The career goals were about prestige, about power and authority, about control. The relationship goals were about someone to meet my needs, somebody to fulfill a part of my life that wasn't live in the way that I wanted it to be. And the creative goals were about being a kind of person with a certain kind of significance. So I make this list of things to chase, seeking my own fulfillment and my own significance. And the creepy thing is I achieved those lists of goals. As I went through them, I was like, yep, did that, yep, did that, yep, did that. That very same year, I achieved all those things, and yet they did not bring the deep comfort that I was expecting that they would. When I set the bar higher for the following year, that didn't do it either. My salary, my career, my relationship, my creative goals all gave me places to put my energy and my focus in an effort to experience my satisfaction, and I couldn't get none. There weren't many goals about relationship with God in those journals. But here's my caution. It's possible to make God-sounding goals, but for the same wrong underlying reason. By worshiping God, you hope to get the things you want, the feelings you want, the persona, the image, the, I don't know, the posture that you want. But worship of God is only true worship if he is the ultimate goal and desire. He's not fooled by my dressing up my own uh, desire for significance in pursuing him. And when we act like we're worshiping God, but we really are just doing our duty so he'll bless us, we're not worshiping the real God who is, we're really worshiping a phony God that we've manufactured even if we didn't use a wood lathe and manufacture one ourselves. And we sometimes call this fake God, this idol, the vending machine God. Okay, The reason that we call it that is because what we expect is to be able to put in coins that we control. Our attendance on Sundays at church, ooh, that's a coin that I can put in the vending machine God uh, box. I can put in a tithe, and that's going to get me points. I can volunteer at the church or in the community, and that's going to get me points. I'm going to say something kind or encouraging to somebody, and that's going to get me points. We hope to press the button at the end of that process and get from God the things that we actually want. And this is a little bit like what Israel intended to do 
with the Ark of the Covenant when they sent it into battle with their army, thinking that the Ark being there was going to guarantee the outcome that they wanted. But that's not what happened. And as the scene with Dagon played out, it was evident that God had his own priorities in the presence displayed by the ark, and it couldn't be used in that way to get Israel ahead without connection to him. So treating the things of God as idols will never, ever give you the results that you actually want, not in the long term. Now, here's another example from my life. What I had in mind when I started seminary wasn't what I'm doing now. I certainly would not have expected to have been working with, let alone for, Tim Riley. Uh, I knew him at the time. We were friends, but I, I didn't picture this. But God used the intervening years to grow us in ways that made this possible, that made it constructive. But imagine if I weren't open to what God was actually doing because I wanted what I wanted instead of what God was planning. What if pursuing a godly-looking goal I set, an idol, prevented me from just serving God as he directed me? Chasing our wrong reasons will always work against obeying God for the right reasons. If you've been around a little while, you know obeying God for the right reasons is one of the things that we emphasize. And chasing our wrong reasons, justifying ourselves with our wrong reasons, putting our hope in our wrong reasons, are always going to be contradicting that. Now, if you're not considering seminary, good for you. But the point still applies to you too. The idol that we're chasing will always be a distraction from knowing God fully and experiencing his love fully. Paul doesn't want us to engage in this form of idol worship either. So he He's going to advocate us sacrificing ourselves, our everything, including our goals and our desires, to him, to God. To give God all of ourselves and hold nothing back. And he talks about that in Romans 12, in verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good, pleasing, and perfect, those are great things. What Paul is saying is God wants to separate us from our Dagon, our thing that isn't going to have any power, isn't going to leave us where we want to be, isn't ultimately going to be a destination with any substance. And from our misuse of the equivalent of our ark, so both our non-godly looking and our godly looking idols, he wants to separate us from both of those and give us real wisdom, real knowledge of his will. So remembering that we're born idol factories, remembering we are slaves to our idols. Now, in my life experience, John Calvin is 100% accurate about us being idol makers from birth. We desperately need freeing, not just from individual idols like jobs and friends and status and significant to others and security and our own personal significance, but also from continuing just to make them. Uh, 
Something has to intervene on our behalf. And that's where Christ comes in. And the gospel gives us freedom from slavery to idols. That's where freedom comes. Now, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was astonished. And to be honest, he's pretty ticked off about how these people who heard the truth, who heard the reality of the gospel, who saw it manifest in their midst, were returning to their idol slave behaviors. Galatians 4, 8 through 11, we're going to look at sort of 8b. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. There's another oof. Paul says, I spent a bunch of time with you, and now I wonder whether it was a waste of time. Because what he's saying is real significance will never, ever come from our idols. Never. Whatever human-generated source of significance we chase, even religious observances like the, the days he was talking about, are going to fall short, yes. But they'll also compromise our freedom in Christ when we're relying on what we do for our righteousness, for our significance, we return to slavery. Real significance will only, can only, must only come from God. And this is the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel says, I wasn't good enough, but God was good enough to make me right with him. Jesus was gracious enough to give up everything so that could happen. If your job if your hobby, if your finances, if your house, if your vacation, if your religious practice, if your ministry is where you get your significance, you have lost sight of the gospel. The gospel says you are significant because God has made you significant. The gospel doesn't say that he's made you significant by any of those things that I just listed any place else we look to enhance the significance that God has demonstrated in Christ is a total dead end. But here's the extra crazy thing, if you will. Remember John Calvin saying idolatry is worshiping the gifts instead of the giver? All right. When we worship the giver of our skills, our talents, our resources, our spiritual gifts, and our opportunities, he puts those things to the use that he intends. And this is the gospel-centered understanding of what we are for. These gifts aren't for our significance. These are given because we have already been promised and declared and proven significant by Jesus's loving sacrifice. So measure yourself by the depth of the love of Christ. Christ's love for you demonstrates your value, not the quantity, not the quality of the gifts that you've been given that you see. Some search for performance, some for leisure, some for challenge, some for comfort. 
And the gospel says that as a student, as a worker, as a caretaker or a caregiver, as an employee or a supervisor, as an unemployed person or a retired person, you have been given gifts. And your gifts are a terrible measure of your worth, but they make glorious opportunities to serve your Savior. So serving your Savior is the point. How are you using what you've been given? I want to draw your attention to what the same John from our, our passage in 1 John writes of his vision of heaven in Revelation. He describes the praise of God in a way that I think is related. So listen to what the, the elders, these models, these exemplars, these, these people who are set apart from the rest of us as leaders, what they do with what they've been given. Revelation 4, 8, uh, in the middle, it says, day and night, they never stop saying, these creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Shall we recognize that God is the eternal one? That this is all for him? Are we going to follow those elders in Revelation in saying, I've been given this crown, but it's not for my glory, it's for God's glory? Can we acknowledge that God's plan is best? That what he gives us, we steward, but we steward it not for our own glory, but for his? Shall we approach him and ask to be set free again from our idolatry and to live in fullness? I hope that we do. Bow your heads for a moment, and let me just conclude by praying. Father, we have reason to be eternally grateful for your grace and your mercy through Christ. And I thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Would you make us brave and willing to examine our lives for visible idols and the heart conditions that those idols reveal underneath. Would you give us strength not to worship the gifts that you have given us, but instead to use them to worship you? Set us free from what entangles us and let us live in the joy of the significance and purpose that you have given to us in Christ. Help us to believe you when you say you love us and have called us into your family, your little children. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Love you, Church of the Valley.